0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith. And you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: So I'm super excited about our pro- program tonight. Uh, uh, Professor Daniel Garland, really his first time teaching at the Institute. Uh, so welcome, Daniel. And uh, the mic and video is all yours.
2: So tonight's talk is... Uh, Behold the glory, Christ the temple of God. And to understand how Christ is the true temple of God, we have to go back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. Um, In about Genesis 1 and 2, the scholar Gerhard von Rad has this to say. He says, Nothing is here by chance. Everything must be considered carefully, deliberately, and precisely. These sentences cannot be easily over-interpreted theologically. Indeed, to us, the danger appears greater that the expositor will fall short of discovering the concentrated doctrinal content. So there's so much to see in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, And one of the things we want to look at tonight uh, is notice in Genesis 1 and 2 the preponderance of the number 7. There's... Sevenfold repetition all through Genesis one and two, um, and I have this on your handout. Uh, if you look there, uh, if you print up the handout, a couple of these. These are just some of them. There's so many more uh, in Genesis one one to two three. After the introductory verse of Genesis one one, there are seven paragraphs pertaining to each of the seven days. Okay, that's that's a given. There's seven days, so there's going to be seven paragraphs but it gets better. The expression, it was good, occurs seven times. And this is quite significant because in the second day, you might notice, it doesn't say it was good. But this is made up for on the third day to keep the sevenfold repetition by saying it was good twice on the third day. Also, the first sentence in the Hebrew has seven words. The second sentence in the Hebrew has 14 words, which is two times seven. And then in the seventh paragraph, Genesis two verses two to three, there are three sentences consisting of seven words each with the seventh day in the middle of each, right? So we have all these seven, 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 seven. Why? Why the number seven? Why is it coming up so much? Well, there's two reasons. One, is to highlight the importance of the seventh day, the Sabbath. The day of God's rest, the day in which Adam and Eve and all their descendants were meant to rest in God. The Sabbath day is also the day of God's enthronement in his cosmic temple. The world, the world is a cosmic temple. And Eden then is the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwells. Now, We can see this. We can see that Genesis 1 and 2 presents the creation of the world as a cosmic temple by looking at the parallels between Genesis 1 and 2 and then the later construction of the tabernacle and then even later with the temple. And I have this on your handout there too, if you'll take a look at the comparison between the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus 39 to 40 and the parallels with the creation of the world. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have here in verse uh, Genesis 1.31, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Exodus 39.43, Moses saw all of the skilled work, and behold, they had done it as God had commanded it. They had done it. In Genesis 2.1, it says the heavens and the earth, and all their array were completed. In Exodus 39, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent meeting was completed in genesis 2 2 and god completed all the work that he he had done in genesis 40 verse 33 and moses completed the work in genesis 2 3 and god blessed genesis 40 uh, 39 43 and moses blessed genesis 2 3 and god sanctified it genesis 49 and you shall sanctify it and all its vessels And then when we come to the temple built under Solomon and its dedication, we see, according to 1 Kings 6, verse 35, it took seven years to complete. It was also, according to 1 Kings 8, 2, dedicated on the festival of Sukkoth, a feast lasting seven days and taking place on the seventh month of the year. And then we see in 1 Kings eight twelve to 53, that Solomon's dedication is composed of seven petitions. So there's all these sevenfold repetitions here as well. There are other parallels that point to the creation of the world as a cosmic temple. For example, when Adam is in the garden and he's told, according to most translations, I assume yours as well, uh, to work, and guard the garden in Genesis 2.15, that's kind of a bad translation, to work and guard. Uh, Some of you might know this if you've studied with the Institute before, that really what what you're getting there, work in the Hebrew is avad, and to guard is shamar. And these these two words, the only time they're ever used together are for the liturgical actions that are designated for the liturgical priests uh, the Levitical priests in the Tabernacle, in Numbers 3, 8, and 18. Uh, A better translation for these words, avad and shamar, are worship and obey. That's Adam's task in the Garden, to worship God and obey his commandments. And we also see that Eden and the Tabernacle and the Temple were both entered from the East. Cherubim are both associated with Eden. In Eden, we see in Genesis 3, they're guarding the entrance so Adam and Eve can't get back in. And in the tabernacle and temple, we see that the cherubim are on the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. We also see in the temple that the menorah, the giant lampstand, uh, is styled after the tree of life of the Garden of Eden. In Exodus 25, we have a description of the lampstand that it was made uh, containing cups like almonds with flowers on each branch. Further, the curtain in the Tabernacle and Temple that separates the Holy of Holies uh, has imagery on it that evokes the cosmos. Josephus, the first century uh, AD historian, writes about this in his Jewish Wars. He says, quote, It was a Babylonian curtain embroidered with blue and fine linen and scarlet and purple and of a contexture that was truly wonderful. Nor was this mixture of colors without its mystical interpretation, but was a kind of image of the universe. Genesis 2 also tells us that one of the rivers uh, that watered Eden is the Gihon. This is the same river that's the source of the spring, which flowed adjacent to the temple of Jerusalem. Likewise, the walls of the temple were decorated with golden palm trees and flowers. The bronze pillars were decorated with pomegranate patterns. So literally, when you enter into the temple, it's like you're entering into the Garden of Eden. The walls were set with precious stones. We're calling the precious stones in Eden as described in Genesis 2.12. In the courtyard of the temple was a gigantic bronze basin, which they called the sea. And it was representative of the primordial waters of creation. Finally, in the Garden of Eden, when God is described as walking to and fro after the sin of, sin of Adam and Eve, in the Hebrew, you have a word that's the same word used in regard to God's presence in the tabernacle and temple found in Leviticus 26-12, Deuteronomy 23-14, and Second Samuel 7, verses 6-7. Now, all that shows us the importance of the sevens pointing to uh, the Sabbath day and the Garden of Eden as the Holy of Holies of the Cosmic Temple. But all these sevens in Genesis 1 and 2 point to another thing. Namely, that since seven is the sign of the covenant, and the Hebrew word for oath is shavah, which literally means to bind oneself by seven things, and an oath is the basis for the covenant. That seven is dominant in the creation account shows us that God makes a covenant with the world through the Sabbath. Through the seventh day, God is binding himself to creation. In the garden, Adam is called to be a priest and a son of God who rests with God on the Sabbath. You'll notice that in uh, Genesis 2 verses 1 to 3 that describe the seventh day, There's no mention of, it was evening, it was morning, so-and-so day, like you have in the previous six days. That's because the original seventh day, Sabbath, was meant to be eternal. It was a day where mankind was to rest with God, right, and worship him. It's it preached in this garden, and the work is the work of worship. And the commission to Adam in Genesis one twenty-eight to be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdued it, is connected to this priestly role of Adam. His task as the high priest is to extend the sacred space of the Garden of Eden to the whole world, so that God's presence will fill the entire earth. Unfortunately, as we know, Adam fails. He tries to be like God, apart from God. He tries to enter into the fullness of sonship, which is the likeness to god which the likeness to god brings about he tries to do this on his own means and the result is that eden is lost he can no longer dwell in harmony in god's holy of holies now although it was god who barred adam and eve from going and the tree of life um by appointing cherubim to guard the entrance to Eden, due to their attempt to be like God, apart from God, the attempt at a return to Eden is initiated by God himself, who never abandons his covenant people. God desires for man to be like him, but on his own terms. Man must realize that this divinization cannot be achieved as a result of his own labors. In this way, then, the loss of Eden is meant to serve a pedagogical purpose. Man suffers the loss of dwelling in God's presence until such a time when God can bring man to the realization that only God can do this. Only God can bring about man's divinization. Hence, he doesn't abandon his people after the fall, but like a loving father, he actively works to prepare and lead them throughout the Old Testament back into the Sabbath and Temple rest. This initiation on the part of God can be seen by the passing on of the commission of Adam to subdue the whole earth, uh, which is passed on to the descendants of Adam. And this is achieved through sanctuary building. Man tries to recreate the original uh, conditions of dwelling with God trying to get back to Eden. Now, uh, this this trying to get to the return to Eden is what I like to call the Edenic ideal, uh, the state of dwelling in harmony with God where he alone is the center of worship. Now, insofar as man does the sanctuary building in accordance with God, he goes ever closer back to Eden. But on the other hand, insofar as he does the sanctuary building uh, outside of the plan of God, he moves further and further away from Eden. And we see this movement away from God very quickly in Genesis, as sin ensnares the world. We see that Cain kills his brother Abel, and when he is banished, he builds a city in Genesis 4.17. Turn to Genesis 4.17. Take a look there. It says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and he called the name of the city after the name of his son enoch right so what we have here is that cain is naming the city after his own son enoch he's trying to preserve his own name instead of that of god's name but um after that well after that we see the effects of the sin in in trying to uh be like God, apart from God, and the pride that encapsulates humanity. Sin runs rampant until the covenant people of God, the descendants of Seth, intermarry with the co- uh, with the people of Cain, who are outside of the covenant. And see what Genesis eleven to twelve says. I'm sorry, Genesis six eleven to twelve. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. But look at Genesis 6, 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. So God causes the flood in order to start a new creation, and with that new creation, a new Adam, namely Noah. Now, if we pay close attention to the Noah narrative, we can see that there's also a creation temple theme. Whereas in the original creation, God was the builder, in the new creation, Noah is the builder. He's tasked with building the cosmos in miniature, which is the ark, which is to contain the exemplars of all animal life, as well as Noah's family, the remnant of the previous creation. Scholars have also shown that there's a connection between Noah's Ark and the ancient Near East Temple ideology in general. One scholar, Joseph Blankensop, has noticed what he calls a formulaic correspondence between the construction of the Ark and that of the Temple in the wilderness. And he, he shows the parallels. First, you have Genesis 6.22. Noah did, all, uh, Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, thus did he. And then we see with the tabernacle in Exodus 39, 42. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, thus did the Israelites all the work. Blankensop goes on to note that in their basic design, both Noah's ark and Solomon's temple reflect the three-decker world of ancient Near Eastern cosmogonies. Noah's actions on top of Mount Ararat may also point to a temple theme and thus to a new Eden imagery. In Genesis 9.1, go to Genesis 9.1, you see there that Noah is told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, as was told to Adam in Genesis 1.28. In Genesis 8.20, after Noah exits the ark, he builds an altar and offers burnt offerings on the altar, which are a pleasing odor to God. So he's also a priest, right? Just like Adam was. But also, the only other place where burnt offerings are a pleasing aroma to God are the offerings of the tabernacle. And there's also a distinction between clean and unclean animals, with only clean ones being able to be offered as sacrifice with Noah, a distinction that we later see in regard to the temple sacrifices. But like Noah, Uh, Like Adam, Noah also has a fall. As Dr. Bergsma pointed out two Thursdays ago, Noah's sin also involved nakedness, a garden, and fruit. Right? As Adam goes, so goes Noah. The first effect of Noah's sin is the sin of his son, Ham, resulting in a curse upon Ham's own son, Canaan. And this trajectory of sin leads to the Tower of Babel, and another attempt at a return to Eden. <clears throat> Although the builders at Babel made an attempt at going back to the Edenic ideal, the Tower of Babel nevertheless serves as a quintessential example of what happens when mankind tries to make a return apart from God. Cast out of the new Eden of Mount Ararat, the Hamites go east this way, east, to build their own Eden, just as Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden toward the east. And just as Adam's sin was trying to be like God, apart from God, a sin resulting in pride, so also with the inhabitants of Babel. The narrative strikingly brings out the arrogance of the people. Turn to Genesis 11.4. In Genesis 11.4, the people of Babel say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Right? So we see that um, outside of the covenant line, these descendants of the wicked Ham are seeking to build themselves a city. Right? And make a name for themselves instead of a name for God. As descendants of Ham, they seek to usurp the blessing given by Noah to Shem, That God will dwell in the tents of Shem. That's found back in Genesis 9, verse 27. God enlarged, this is Noah's blessing to his sons. God enlarged Japheth and let him, the hymn there refers back to God, let him, God, dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his slave. So the blessing belongs to Shem and and God is going to dwell with Shem. Now in the Hebrew, there's a plain words here at the Tower of Babel. When the, Babylon, uh, the Babel uh, inhabitants say, let us make a name for ourselves, the, the word in Hebrew for name is Shem. They want to make a Shem for themselves, right? And they want to um, usurp the blessing that went to the real Shem, right? Who is in the covenant line of God. Moreover, their pride... Is brought out vividly in the text as they try to build a ziggurat, which is uh, a symbol, which symbolized and functioned as an artificial mountain. And the, the irony of this is they're trying to build this mountain in the midst of the plain of Shinar, right? And so instead of building a new mountain of God, the people of Babel intend to build a monument to themselves, attempting to reach up into the heavens and become gods apart from God. Their false Eden fails when God confuses their language, causing them to stop their building and scatter out amongst the earth. And this sets the stage for God himself to initiate a return to Eden by calling Abraham out from his own country and people in order to be a blessing to all the nations. Now, we don't have time to explore the Abraham narrative in depth, But we do see that the covenant line is once again narrowed through Abraham's seed, setting the stage for Moses and the people of Israel. As God tells Moses in the burning bush, he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, not Ishmael, and the God of Jacob, as opposed to Esau. And he is the same God of creation come to bring his people back to him. So we have then the exodus from Egypt, and Moses leads the Israelites to Mount Sinai. So here we have another mountain of God. After Moses enacts the covenant between Israel and God in Exodus 24, he has sent Sinai, first with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders to partake in a feast with God. And then he goes up alone to receive the stone tablets of the law, as well as instructions for the tabernacle. In verses 15 to 8, turn to Exodus 24, verses 15 to 8, uh, 15 to 18. Moses here, as a new Adam, representative of all Israel, enters into the Sabbath of God. Here's what it says. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of God settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the sons of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Here we have the beginning of the correct way of returning to Eden, a return that is led by God. Now, In order to bring about the Edenic presence of God for all Israel, Moses is commissioned with the building of the tabernacle. We have already examined how the tabernacle is related to creation, whereby the world is created as a cosmic tabernacle or temple, with the Garden of Eden as the Holy of Holies. Thus, the tabernacle, then, is a microcosm, the place for Israel to once again enter into the Edenic rest and dwell with God with the Holy of Holies as the new Garden of Eden. The instructions that God gives to Moses to build the tabernacle, which a tabernacle is like a movable temple, reveal to us that Sinai is not in itself. God has brought Israel out of Egypt for the purpose of worshipping in his presence, as we see in Exodus 3.18, on his holy mountain, Mount Sinai, but they are not to remain on Sinai forever. The land of Canaan awaits them. The tabernacle can be seen uh, to be then, as one scholar has called it, quote, a portable mountain of God. As such it represents represents the primordial mountain of God, Mount Eden. Yet at the same time, the tabernacle and the promised land are not ends in themselves. As the new Adam Israel in its royal priestly role is called to expand out from Canaan, bringing the holiness of Yahweh to the rest of the nations and thereby bring a blessing to the whole world. Thus, despite all the failings of God's people, there remains a continuous mission driving salvation history, namely to establish the entire world as the Holy of Holies. Now, unfortunately, uh, as you know, the advancement toward the Edenic ideal does not last long. Only 40 days after receiving the Ten Commandments, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the instructions for building the tabernacle, Israel is at the base of the mountain breaking the first commandment by worshiping the golden calf, the Apis bull god. Right? You could take uh, Israel out of Egypt, but it's a lot harder to take Egypt out of Israel. And just as Israel was on the verge of regaining the rest of Adam, they fall back into the idolatry of Egypt. The sin of the golden calf has been compared to the sin of Adam uh, and Eve in that it's the original sin of Israel. Just as Adam attempted to be like God, apart from God, so did Israel in constructing the golden calf. When Moses makes intercession for Israel after the Levites come to the side of Moses and slaughter the idolaters, the covenant is renewed, but not as it was before. Whereas previously the covenant on Sinai was to be the means for re-entering, the, re-entering Eden through the tabernacle cult. Now with the second Sinai covenant, the relationship between Israel and God becomes less than intimate. What the golden calf reveals then is that Israel is not yet free from the wages of Adam's sin. Only when this occurs will they be able to fully enter back into the Edenic ideal. Thus, God will use the newly formed Levitical priesthood born out of idolatry to lead Israel back to him. This return, however, will require a whole new set of ritual and judicial legislation. Mainly found in the book of Leviticus. So now we're going to turn to the book of Leviticus. And I see, I see your faces, I know what you're saying. Leviticus, come on, let's let's just skip over that. That's boring. We don't need to read Leviticus. But I I I say to you, if you have the eyes to see, Leviticus is an amazing book, especially if you look at it through the lens of the temple and the return to Eden. Um, And so The purpose of the intricate legislation found in the book of Leviticus is to free Israel from the idolatrous disposition of their hearts towards one of openness to God and life with Him in the Promised Land. I'd like to focus on Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement ritual here. So we're not going to do all of Leviticus, right? So just the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement ritual is meant to cleanse Israel of its attachment to sin and sanctify them so that they may enter into the sabbatical rest of creation. It seeks to do this by providing a connection to the liturgy of creation, whereby the sanctuary, the tabernacle or the temple, is cleansed in order to maintain a sacred space for God in the midst of Israel, which as a way of returning to Eden has far-reaching consequences, not just for Israel, but for the whole cosmic order. The day of atonement then is the day on which Israel comes the closest to entering back into the Edenic rest. Now, the role of the priest as the new Adam played an important role in directing Israel to the past path of restoration toward God. L. Michael Morales points out that the combination of the tabernacle and Israel's priesthood served as, quote, a renewed humanity dwelling with God in a consecrated cosmos. The high priest's entrance into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement serves as a liturgical drama. Listen to how Morales describes it. He says, On the Day of Atonement, Adam's eastward expulsion from the Garden of Eden was reversed as the high priest, a cultic Adam, ascended westward through the cherubim-woven veil, and into the summit of the cultic mountain of God. Within the narrative progression, then, atonement, along with its elements of purification and ransom, is that is that which enables the return to Yahweh God, a reversal of Eden's expulsion. The Pentateuch, therefore, unfolds the Levitical way Yahweh has opened for humanity to dwell in his presence, a way characterized by the drama of the cultists, and serving merely as a pattern and analogy for the cosmos. So we have then on the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the year, where through ritual reenactment, Adam, represented by the high priest, who represents all of Israel, offers worship to God in Eden, which is represented by the Tabernacle Temple. Now, For the sake of time, we're going to have to skip ahead out of the Pentateuch to 2 Samuel and King David. So go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, David begins to initiate an Edenic rest like never before seen in salvation history, after the exile from the garden. David is the new Adam par excellence of the Old Testament. Like Adam, David is a king, right? Adam is a king. He has dominion over all things. So he's uh, the vice regent of God in the garden. David is a prophet, just as Adam is a prophet, right? Uh, We saw this with uh, Dr. Bergsman's talk two Thursdays ago, that Adam, by naming uh, the animals whom he didn't create, God creates them. So in the ancient world, it's the creator of something who gets to name it. And so God is giving this task to Adam. And one who speaks on behalf of God is a prophet. Right? David is a prophet. He has all these prophetic psalms in the book of Psalms. And finally, David is also, like Adam, a priest. Look at 2 Samuel 6.14. 2 Samuel 6.14 describes David bringing the Ark of the Covenant uh, into Jerusalem after he had conquered it. And it says that David danced before the Lord uh, with a linen ephod, right? Uh, I skipped the line. David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was belted with a linen ephod. A linen ephod is a priestly garment. And then look at 2 Samuel 6, 18. David, when David had finished offering the burnt offering, and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. So David is offering sacrifices, something reserved for the priests, and he's blessing the people. Now now we come to 2 Samuel 7, which is the locus of the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7. Now, when they, uh, Now when the king dwelt in the house, and the Lord had given him, David, rest from all his enemies right so now David he's conquered Jerusalem he has rest from all his enemies and now that this rest uh, from all his enemies round about is here it's time for a permanent temple a new Eden and David wants to build a house for God we see in 2nd Samuel 7 but because he's a man of wars and has blood on his hands namely the blood of Uriah the husband of Bathsheba God says, "You cannot build me a house, but your son Solomon will." Right? Look at verse Second uh, Samuel seven verses eleven to thirteen. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, uh, I'm sorry, I, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Right, Bayith in the Hebrew, which uh, has kind of a double entendre. It could be a house as in a dynasty, is going to have children, but it also refers to the temple. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, your seed in the singular, after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. Right, so we have the Davidic son of David is going to build a house for the name of God. And then what is David's response? Look at 2 Samuel 7, 18. Then the king David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house uh, for a great while to come and have shown me and your translation most likely says future generations. You have shown me future generations. Future generations is a very bad translation for the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it's the Torah Adam, right? The Torah for Adam, the Torah for mankind. You have shown me a Torah for mankind. So what David is saying here is that uh, the Torah, which can be translated as law or instruction. The instruction for mankind involves the covenant with David and his, and his uh, descendants and the temple, right? Keep that in mind. Uh, it's closely associated with the covenant and the temple. It's through the temple and the covenant that God will instruct man to find his way back to Eden. So Solomon in 1 Kings builds the temple. And we saw earlier how the temple was like entering into a garden with all the images of flowers and trees. And it also had this cosmic imagery of creation. Turn to 1 Kings 8.10 and look what occurs when Solomon dedicates the temple. 1 Kings 8.10. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud, this is the Shekinah, the glory cloud, A cloud filled the house of the Lord, the temple, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Right? So what we have here is a theophany, a revelation of God's presence at the dedication of the temple. Now turn to uh, 1 Kings 8.54. 1 Kings 8.54. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with his hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he uttered by Moses, his servant. Right. So we see that the temple equals the promised rest. Now, uh, you have on your handout there a quote from the Jewish scholar John Levinson. And this is what he has to say about Solomon's temple. He says, the world which the temple incarnates in a tangible way is not the world of history, but the world of creation. The world not as it is, but as it was meant to be and as it was on the first Sabbath. Levinson further comments on the connection between the Temple Mount and the Garden of Eden by saying, the temple offers the person who enters it to worship an opportunity to rise from a fallen world, to partake of the Garden of Eden. The temple is to space what the Sabbath is to time. The temple is to space. What the Sabbath is to time. But you know the story. The story of Israel, you know how it ends. Uh, in First Kings 6.11, when Solomon finished the building of the temple, God says to him, concerning this house which you are building, if you walk in my statutes and obey my ordinances and keep all my covenants and walk in them, That's a pretty big if. Then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Well, guess what? Israel doesn't do it. They fail. And this leads to the great crisis of 586 BC, the destruction of the temple by Babylon and the Babylonian exile. Shortly before the destruction of the temple, however, after being carried off in the first wave of the exile, the prophet Ezekiel prophesies concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, informing the people that the judgment has come upon them due to their sins. Ezekiel sees that the temple is a mere shadow that will make way for the reality but he also tells them that God will save his people and it will involve a restoration of both the temple and the Davidic covenant, uh, the Davidic kingdom. Let's take a look at the promise. Look at Ezekiel 34, verses 22 uh, to 28. Ezekiel is a little bit later towards the New Testament uh, after Jeremiah. So Ezekiel 34, verses 22 to 28. Here we have uh, the promise, right? This is in the Book of Consolation. Um, verse 22. I will. This is God speaking through the mouth of the prophet Ezekiel. I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. I, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. And go to verse 25, I will make them a covenant of peace. This is Ezekiel's term for the new covenant, which is described in Jeremiah. I'll make them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in woods. And I will make them and the places round about my hill a blessing. And I will send down showers in their season and they shall be showers of blessing, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Right? This is a reversal of the cursed land uh, after the fall. Right? All this plenty and bounty is reminiscent of a new Eden. And he goes on, And the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord, when I break the, ba- uh, the bars of their yoke, and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They shall no more be prey to nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. Right After the sin of Adam, Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they were afraid because they were naked. With the reversal of the curse, with the new Eden, none shall be afraid. Take a look now at Ezekiel's vision of the new temple in the messianic age. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 43. In Ezekiel 43, uh, he's, Ezekiel's brought to uh, the temple mount, and he's shown what the messianic temple will look like. And it says, afterward, Ezekiel's talking here, he says, afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of God, of the God of Israel, came from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Right. So just as there was a theophany with the glory cloud in Solomon's temple, there's going to be that here in the new temple, but more. The glory will shine out throughout the whole earth. Right. Now turn to Ezekiel forty-seven one we'll look at a couple more verses in Ezekiel uh, about the temple. Ezekiel 47, 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the right side of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Now skip over to uh, 47, verse 9. And wherever the river goes every living creature which swarms will live and there will be very many fish for this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh so everything will live where the river goes so this water coming out of the messianic temple everything that it touches it gives life to it right keep this in mind this is gonna be very important in a little bit now uh, we we can compare this also. Um, you don't need to flip back there unless you want to, unless you can find it. I have it marked so I can flip easily. Uh, Psalm 36 verses 7 and 9. We have here a little bit of what uh, Ezekiel is kind of alluding to. Psalm uh, 36 verse 7. How precious is your mercy, O God! The children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, that is the temple. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. The word delights there in the Hebrew is literally Edens. From the river of your Edens. Adenica. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Right. Now, so this is a lofty vision of the Messianic temple. And after the Babylonian exile, the Israelites return to the land. And they begin to rebuild the temple. And no doubt. They probably had Ezekiel's prophecy in their mind, right? And they 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 are expecting this big uh rebuilding of the temple and ushering in of the messianic times, right? But turn to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. In Ezra, we see that uh it's described the rebuilding of this temple. So we're talking about the second temple now in Jerusalem, and they rebuild this temple, but as we see in Ezra 3:11 to 13. Not all were excited about this. Look at Ezra 3.11. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the Father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid many shouted for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great joy, and the sound was heard afar. Why are these people weeping? Right? You're rebuilding the temple. They're weeping because this second temple pales in comparison to Solomon's temple. Right? And guess what? Uh, turn to Ezra 6, verse 14. Ezra 6, 14 we see what happens when this new temple is dedicated. It says, they finished their, uh, let's see, Ezra 16, I'm sorry, Ezra uh, 6, verse 14. They finished their building by the command of the God of Israel and by the decrees of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the sons of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 he goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses, for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. What strikes you that's missing here, right, in this dedication? Something that was there in Solomon's dedication that's not here, right? There's no theophany. There's no glory cloud, right? Ezekiel's temple, this is not, right? Now, this second temple is completed in 515 BC. And then later on down towards uh the time of Christ we have in 19 BC Herod the Great's temple. Now Herod the Great was the great architecture architect of the ancient world and he builds the second temp- uh he built his temple literally right on top of the second temple. Now in human terms Herod's temple surpasses the glory of Solomon's temple. It was a massive building project, which wasn't really completed until 64 AD, just in time for it to be destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. This is the setting in which Christ is born, right? The focus is on Herod's temple, while over in Bethlehem, in a manger, A little baby is born who is the true fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. The one Ezekiel spoke about, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The beloved disciple, John the Apostle, knows this. Turn to John's Gospel, John chapter 1. Now, in the prologue of John, uh, we see that he He's going to bring out this uh, imagery of Christ as the new temple. Now, if you want to do this, if your goal is to show that Jesus is the new temple, what would you do? You'd bring in new creation imagery and lots of sevens all over the place, right? Right, Fern? Yes. That is exactly what John does in his gospel. Right. We don't have time today to examine all the sevens throughout the Gospel of John, but just take my word for it, they're everywhere. But the new creation imagery, we get right away. From the very start, John wants us to see that his Gospel tells of a new creation. And to hammer that point home further, his Gospel not only begins where Genesis 1 began, but ends where the creation account ended as well. This is also on your handout. We have the parallels here between Genesis 1, 1 and 2, and John chapter 1 and the end of John's gospel. So in Genesis 1, 1, in the Greek, we have enarche in the beginning, God. In John 1, 1, we have enarche in the beginning, the Word. In Genesis 2, 1, At the end of the seven days of creation, God finishes his work in the Greek senatelesin and rests on the Sabbath. At the end of the Gospel of John, John 19, verses 30 to 31, we see Jesus finishes his work. And on the cross, he says, uh, to tetelestai, it is completed, right? And then he rests on the Sabbath in the tomb, right? So John's Gospel, he's showing us the new creation. And if there's a new creation, there's a new temple, right? So take a look at John 1.5. John 1.5, talking about Jesus, he says, uh, back up to verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, what's he speaking about here? Right he's speaking about sure he's he's going back to creation and talking about uh in genesis um what is it genesis uh one uh, three where God speaks and light comes through the darkness, right yes, that's there, but I suspect that along with that, he also has something else closer to his own history in mind, right. In 200 BC, the Seleucid King Antiochus III defeated Ptolemy V near the sources of the Jordan River. And Palestine passed from the Ptolemies to the Seleucids. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Antiochus III was gracious to the Jews in Jerusalem and ordered the repair of the damages incurred during his conquest. However, his son Antiochus IV Epiphanes wasn't so nice he implemented a strict process of what's known as hellenization the promotion of greek cults and culture and he did this to judah the land of judah which involved primarily prohibition of circumcision and a prohibition of temple sacrifices to yahweh as you can expect the jews weren't quite happy with this uh we see this in the book of first maccabees In 168 BC, Antiochus profanes the Jerusalem temple. He erects an altar to Zeus in the temple and sacrifices a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar. And the Jews saw this as an abomination of desolation. Now you have the figure of Judas Maccabeus, Judas the hammer. He figured it would be suicide to launch a revolt, but he said it would be better to launch a revolt than live in this era of profanation. So the Maccabees succeed beyond their wildest imagination by using guerrilla warfare tactics. And then in 164 BC, they restore the whole land of Judea and establish the Feast of Hanukkah, a festival of lights, as Josephus calls it, to celebrate the success and the cleansing and rededication of the temple. This uh, first Hanukkah in Maccabees takes place on the 25th of Kislev which is December 25th, right? So I find it hard to believe that John would not have noticed the connection between the rededication of the temple under the Maccabees, the festival of lights, which also, by the way, did not involve the theophany, and the birth of Jesus Christ on the same day, who is the true light of the world and the true temple. Now, the miracle of Hanukkah is that they only had the barely enough oil to keep the land uh, the the candle going in the temple uh, for a day, but the miracle is it lasted eight days. Christ is the light of the world, who his light will not go out. Right in the Greek, it's it's a present active. The light shines in the darkness. It's present. It's gonna keep shining. His light will not end. And to make the connection to the temple absolutely clear, John gives us verse fourteen, John one fourteen. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now the word for dwelt in the Greek is literally uh literally means pitched his tent or tabernacled amongst us. Right? So the in the incarnation, Ezekiel's temple has arrived. Right? Jesus is the son of David who builds a house for God's name as promised in 2 Samuel 7. And that house is the temple of his flesh. And what is the first effect of the incarnation? Verse 14. We have beheld or contemplated his glory. Right. And what type of glory is this? Is it worldly glory like Herod's, te- Herod's temple? No. It's... Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. We have here the theophany Ezekiel prophesied about, right? This glory here, John is referring back to the glory cloud that entered into the temple in Solomon's dedication. The glory that's going to fill the whole earth in Ezekiel 47, or Ezekiel uh, 46, Uh, 34 it was, sorry. Um, There's an awesome contrast here. Solomon's temple was built with mass amounts of gold, silver, bronze, precious stones. And Herod's temple was even greater. But Christ in, his in, Christ in his incarnation, as the cute little baby in the manger, has more glory than Herod and Solomon's temple combined. Solomon's temple was holy because God dwelt in it jesus doesn't just have god dwelling in him like the Nestorians say jesus is god himself made man we see in john 4 verse 13 to 14 turn there in in here we see jesus's conversation with the samaritan woman, a uh, woman at the well saint photini as tradition names her he tells her that He is the source of living water that wells up to eternal life. He's referencing Ezekiel 47 and pointing to himself, right? The water that flowed out of Ezekiel's temple and gave life to all that it touched. So Jesus, the water that flows out of Jesus, gives life to all. This is the waters of baptism, which gives the best kind of life, eternal life coming from the fount of life itself. Remember John 1.3, In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Also in John 4.21, verses 23, Jesus tells the woman, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritan temple was, nor in Jerusalem, where the Jewish temple was, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And in John 14, we see that Jesus is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So we're to worship in Him, the new temple. And as the true temple, All worship is centered around Jesus Christ. If it's true worship, it has Christ as its center. Jesus is not only the true temple, though, but the true temple sacrifice as well. In John 6, 53 to 55, Jesus tells us, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And then in verse uh, 56, he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so he who eats me will live because of me. You might recall that bread and wine were the thank offering, the todah. Uh, of the temple sacrifices. Here Jesus is saying that he is giving his body and blood as the new Todah, the new temple offering. Take a look uh, real quick as we come to an end. Take a look at John 56 again. It's a bit strange and not what you would expect uh, if you read it carefully. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him shouldn't it be the other way around we receive him into us and once he's in us then we enter into him no that's not what jesus is saying christ says that if we receive him worthily we will abide in him he takes us into him and it's through abiding in him first that he then abides in us And so if we receive him worthily in the Eucharist, Christ, the new temple, dwells in us in the Eucharist. And where is God's dwelling? In the temple. Therefore, we too become temples of God when Christ abides in us. Keep this in mind. When you go to Mass on Christmas Day, at that Mass, you have returned to the Garden of Eden as you do at every Mass. And you will receive the temple of God And you yourself will become temples of God to spread the glory of Christ to the whole world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory. Mary saw his glory on Christmas Day. The shepherds in the field saw his glory. Let us also, with the eyes of faith, see his glory, and united with him, enter back into the Edenic rest. Thank you.
0: We have a question uh, coming in from Bob asking, some people have taught me in past years that our bodies are temples. Can you explain
1: this?
2: Yes. Well, as St. Paul says, um, right, it's, it's the whole uh, thing I was saying about at the end. When we receive Christ into, uh, well, I mean, there's, there's, couple of things, right? And it's all involved with the sacraments, right? We become temples of the Holy Spirit through baptism. So uh, the waters of baptism, when we were baptized, we're baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, right? We become new Christ, right? Um, And so if Christ is there, so is the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so we, as long as we're in the state of grace, our bodies are temples of God. Right. And, and even further, when we receive him in the Eucharist, we also, we are what we eat, right? We become the new temple. Christ is the new temple. We become temples. Augustine has this great quote, um, in his commentary in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter six, where he, he says that, uh, right, when, uh, I'm going to butcher the quote, when, when you eat me, Right? I don't turn into you, but you turn into me. He's in the words of Jesus, right uh, It's beautiful. It's beautiful reality of what goes on in the Eucharist. You
1: know, can, I, can I add something to what you're saying there, uh, Professor, because this is what <coughs> your whole talk and, and drawing all of these things to Christ, all of this Old Testament is, 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 is coming to Christ. And this point about God's original plan where you started in the Garden of Eden. Remember, and this is just regarding Bob's Bob's point here. Remember that God walked in the cool of the day after the fall, but prior to that, God's presence in the garden was His blowing of His breath into Adam and Eve, and so they themselves are the, in a sense, the the holy of holies within the holy of holies, right within the garden. And so uh, this is God's original plan, and I, that's what that's really what Professor you were talking about this whole time is exactly. when when Christ is born. What we're doing in the church today is what God wanted to have happen in Genesis chapter 1. Do you agree with that?
2: Exactly. And and as uh, Ezekiel prophesies, right, the glory will go out to the ends of the earth. We who become Christians, whenever we, the, the church is the new Eden. It's the new Jerusalem. right, And so we are in this, we're spreading the glory of Christ, as Ezekiel prophesied, to the ends of the earth. Right? Uh, didn't Saint Paul say, No, you not that your body is a temple"? Yes, he did in uh, Corinthians, First Corinthians. Yeah,
1: Daniel, going back to the uh, the Garden of Eden, just real quick. Um, Barbara Hinckley was asking about forgiveness and whether uh, Adam and Eve asked for forgiveness or not. Can you give us any insight on that?
2: Yes. Uh, so there's the tradition um, that Adam and Eve. Well. We see once they're outside of, of the garden, um, they're not cast away, right? So there's, there's some sort of remaining in the covenant, but in an imperfect state. And, uh, you know, people like Irenaeus, Saint Irenaeus talks about the first one redeemed, uh, after the crucifixion and, um, Christ goes down in the Hades. The first one redeemed is Adam. Right, the new Adam redeems the first Adam, and so therefore redeems all Adam, all humanity. Right, and so Adam is um, right. He's he's venerated as the same. He's in the calendar. Um, so there is uh, right. It's not narrated in Scripture that he asked for forgiveness after he's exiled, but we do see if you well, we can see if you turn to uh, Genesis five. Genesis chapter 5 here, that, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis four twenty six, right before 5. Um, we could take verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another child instead of Abel, for Cain slew him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Right, that uh, to call upon the name of the Lord is to worship Yahweh, the one true God. And so there's a sense that the covenant line of Adam through Seth is is reunited to God's covenant. Right, not not the perfect union that we had uh, in the Garden of Eden, but there is a restoration. Sort of, as I said, God wants His people to come back into His covenant, and He does it progressively through stages. Man has to learn. He can't do it alone. He needs God, right? So yeah, uh, Adam would have had some some sort of repentance, and so his descendants through Seth would have been the covenant people. The first one is the way you paralleled Eden and
0: the Ezekiel temple. Is there any way? I know you can't repeat
2: it now, but to to just do a little something in writing and post it, similar to your handout. Sure, sure, yeah. You just went so fast, and it was really—it was there was so much to catch. Sure, yeah. Um, I could put the uh, the scriptural references in there, and so basically, what what is going on is e- Ezekiel pro- uh god through Ezekiel promises that when the messianic age comes and the and the messianic temple, there's going to be a land of plenty, right? It's a reversal of the curse of the ground, and, and um, right, man has to work by the sweat of his brow. All this will be supplied for man, right? And, and it's, it's, right, it's not necessarily material, actual, like you go outside and all this fruit's out there, mm-hmm. carrying, uh, as they did in the Holy Land, these uh, a, a bunch of grapes on, on a pole because it's so big. Right, it's the spiritual blessings of uh, everlasting life through Jesus Christ, and so you get whenever you get amongst the prophets uh, when they talk about this uh, abundance of of blessings, of fruit, of land. Right, the rain's going to come down and water everything. It's going to be fertile and springing up, and all that. the The lamb will lie down with the ox, uh, or Yeah, the lamb will lie down with the ox, right? You'll tread on the adder and it won't bite you and the the baby will play and the adder's dead and stuff like that. That's all the Return to Eden, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There's there's so much, right? I could teach a whole semester's worth on all the Return to Eden imagery, right? I'm writing a dissertation on this, so I'll I'll let you read it when I'm done. Uh, And it's all about, my dissertation is all about this Edenic restoration through the temple, but also through the Sabbath. And I, I cut out so much stuff where the interplay of Sabbath and temple um, and Sabbath itself, right? The, um, the Gospel of John, and I'm looking at the fulfillment of the Sabbath in the Gospel of John. And so when I mention that, there's all this sevenfold imagery right there's seven i two sets of seven i am statements there's the first genesis one into two up to the wedding of cana is seven days narrated uh um, right it's a whole week of creation the new creation at cana um gosh there's so much more sevens there's seven feasts um right seven feasts seven um um I don't know. there's a whole bunch that i'm my mind's going blank right now but uh oh, yeah, yeah. So it's all there
0: Pray for us.